remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from the second half of John chapter 10. Listen to the gospel of our God. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at, at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word to us, your sheep. Help us to understand it and to believe it and to believe on your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Does anybody know what was going on in Jerusalem in the late 170s and early 160s B.C.? In the year 167 B.C., the king of Syria, whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, defiled the temple in Jerusalem. And there had been a war going on for several years before that. He defiled it by sacrificing pigs on the altar and by erecting another altar to the Greek god Zeus. He did several other things as well. Pigs were unclean animals to the Jews and Zeus is a false god. These acts by Antiochus were an abomination. They were sacrilegious acts that defiled the Jews' holy place, holy temple. Antiochus' actions provoked a large-scale revolt in Judea. Many Jews went to war with Syria. The prominent leader of the Jewish revolt was a man named Judah Maccabee, which means Judah the Hammer 
Maccabee, or Maccabeus means hammer. Judah led a, Judah led a successful revolt against the large army of Antiochus Epiphanes. And after about two years of fighting against Syria, in 165 B.C., the Jews got their temple back. And they rededicated it to Yahweh, the Lord God. Judah, Maccabee, ordered the temple to be cleansed. The Jews built a new altar in place of the defiled one. And they reinstituted temple worship. The sacrifices were going again. First Maccabees 4.48 says that the Jews rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple and they consecrated, made holy the courts. This was no doubt a wonderful time in the history of Israel. And to celebrate the liberation and rededication of their temple, the Jews instituted a festival called Hanukkah, which means dedication or to dedicate. It's sometimes called the Festival of Lights. In our text, in John 10.22, it's called the Feast of Dedication. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, is an eight-day festival that usually begins sometime in December, occasionally late October. The Jews still celebrate this feast. This year, Hanukkah occurs in late December. And the point of this festival is to commemorate when the Jews got their holy place back. They got their temple back. The the focus of the Feast of Dedication is on the temple and its holy space, its holy places. And with that in mind, let me read again verses 22 and 23. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So why does John give us this historical detail, this bit of background? He didn't have to. Remember, these gospel writers are cutting out more than they're including. Well, it's because Jesus is the object of Hanukkah's interest. Jesus is the sanctified place, the holy place. He's the true temple of God. And if you really want to celebrate the holy temple, then your focus needs to be on Jesus, which is where the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, as Paul says in Colossians 2. The temple in Jerusalem was no longer the place where God lived. God was in the process of moving out. In fact, in a few months, right before Jesus goes to the cross, a few months from this story, Jesus will predict the temple's destruction. The temple was once again being defiled, you see. This time, not by Antiochus Epiphanes, This time by Israel's own shepherds. The Jewish leaders themselves were defiling the temple. Not least by rejecting the Messiah that the temple pointed to. And so within 40 years, Jesus says, within a generation, it'll be destroyed. Christians don't celebrate Hanukkah because we have the better temple. We have the fulfillment of the temple. And we can look back and and thank God for what he did at that time in Israel's history before Christ came. But we have the better, the greater temple. During Advent and Christmas, we celebrate and commemorate the coming, the advent of the true temple of God. Heaven came to earth. Jesus is the consummate holy place. He's the eternal temple that can never be defiled. It will never be defiled. So John is saying to his readers, in essence, to kind of sum up where he's going with this, the temple in Jerusalem is being defiled by the false shepherds of Israel and God has moved out or is moving out. It's fading away, the old covenant and the old temple. The true temple, you see, lived among us. He tabernacled among us. Remember, that's what John says in John 1. He tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now the the presence of God dwells in Jesus. The temple 
walks on two legs. The temple, God's presence is in the God-man. If you want God's presence, then go to Jesus, not to the temple made with hands that's fading away. Temple made with human hands that's fading away. You see, Jesus is the greater temple and the sovereign shepherd of his people. So that's where John's going. The sovereign Lord has come to earth as the sovereign shepherd, the good shepherd, and the greater temple. And so when we pray Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, what you're really saying, what you're including in that is the idea, Lord Jesus is my shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is my shepherd. Now, before we keep moving through the text, we need to consider just a little bit more background information. Now, up to this point in John 10, Jesus has been unfolding a figure of speech. The the New King James Version calls it an illustration. Up in verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke. Other translations call it a figure of speech. And in that figure of speech, in the first half of John 10, Jesus says that there's a sheepfold, and that he's the door of the sheepfold, and that he's also the good shepherd of the sheep, and that his mission to the world is to lay down his life for his sheep, and then to take it up again, to take up his life, and then to call sheep, his sheep, by name from all over the world into his flock. And that's what he's, it's exactly what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. You're one of the sheep that he's called out of the world and put into his flock. He's called you by name. Now, in the end, there will be one flock from all the peoples of the world enjoying eternal life together. There will be one shepherd who will keep the sheep safe and secure and fed eternally. The good shepherd will make sure that the sheep can go in and go out and find pasture forever. So how did the Jews respond to this figure of speech? We looked at it two weeks ago. Remember, they responded in verse 20 by accusing him of having a demon. He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? And, you know, on the face of it, this is, might be an understandable response. We could see ourselves responding similarly. If you hear someone say, I have the power to lay down my life when I choose, and then I have the power to take it up again when I choose, your first thought might be that this person is mad. Dead people don't have the power to raise themselves from the dead. Someone is resurrected. It's God's doing, not the dead person's doing. And that's precisely the point here. Jesus is claiming to have the power to do something that God alone can do, which is to raise the dead. And Jesus isn't simply saying that he can raise the dead in general, though that's true, He's saying more. He's saying that he can, he can and will raise his own dead body. He's claiming to be God. In verse 24, these skeptical Jews surround Jesus and say to him, how long are you going to keep us in doubt? How long are you going to keep toying around with us? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. Come on, Jesus. No more figures of speech about sheep and and sheepfolds and doorkeepers and doors. Shoot straight with us. Just, just give us some straight talk. Are you the Christ or are you not? Are you the long hoped for Messiah who will establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven? Who are you, Jesus? Verse 25. Jesus answered them. I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So Jesus has already told them plainly who he is, exactly who he is. The figure of speech in the first half of John 10 is plain. It spells it out, who Jesus is. He's the good shepherd 
of Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34. If I'd been thinking, we'd read Ezekiel 34 as our Old Testament passage. And do you remember who the good shepherd is in Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34? It's Yahweh. The Lord God, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yahweh is the good shepherd in Ezekiel 34 who seeks after his lost sheep and takes back the flock from the evil shepherds of Israel. In his figure of speech in John 10, Jesus identifies himself as Yahweh. He's that shepherd in Psalm 23. He's that shepherd, Yahweh, in Ezekiel 34. Jesus plainly makes himself equal with God when he says that he has the power and authority both to lay down his life and to pick it up again. Because he is the sovereign Lord, Jesus can give his life to Sheol at the time of his choosing and he can snatch his life back from the bowels of Sheol at the time of his choosing. So, am I the Messiah? I'm not just the Messiah, Jesus says. I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord God in human form. I can raise the dead even when it's my own human body that I've taken on. I'm the sovereign shepherd in Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34 who's identified as Yahweh. I'm Him. I'm Yahweh. Who will make sure the sheep stay safe eternally. I'll make sure they have good pasture forever. Am I the Christ? I'm a whole lot more than that, Jesus says. I am your God. That's the point here. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. That's what Jesus says in the second half of verse 25. And so what Jesus is saying here is that his works and the Father's works are one and the same. He already said that earlier in John's Gospel. It's not the first time that he's identified his works with the Father's works. You can see in chapter 5, he does the same thing. Now, in verse 26 of John 10, Jesus returns to his figure of speech. And he, re, he revisits that illustration from the first part of John 10 about the shepherd and the sheep. And he presses the imagery a little further. Maybe as far as it'll go. He makes it even clearer that he's way more than just Israel's Messiah. Let's read verses 26 to 30 again. Jesus says in verse 26, But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So why don't these hard-hearted Jews believe in Jesus? What's the reason? What's the, the fundamental reason at the very bottom of it all? Verse 26 says it's simply because they're not part of his flock. My sheep, when God makes you a part of his flock and you become his sheep, my sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice in verse 27. And I know them and they follow me. There are only two kinds of spiritual ears in the world. The kind that can hear Jesus when he calls them by name and the kind that are deaf to the voice of Jesus. The first kind of ears, spiritual ears, are those who are born again from above by water and the Spirit. The second kind are those who are still spiritually deaf toward God, deaf to God's Word. The first kind have been made alive by the power of God. The second kind are still dead in their trespasses and sins. In verse 28, Jesus says that the true sheep are secure. They're securely in His hand. And then he says in verse 29 that even though God the Father gives his sheep into the hand of God the Son, they remain in the hand of God the Father. You see how that works? They, they never leave 
the father's hand, even though the father's giving them, the sheep, into the son's hand. Think about the implications of this. To say that no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand is the same as saying that no one can snatch you out of the father's hand. In other words, the father's hand and the son's hand are in some sense one and equal in strength. They're two hands and yet one hand. This theological point becomes explicit in verse 30 where Jesus says, I and my father are one. So you want to know who I am? Okay, I'll tell you plainly. No figure of speech here. Here it goes. I and the Father are one. His hand and my hand are one because he and I are one in being and power. Now, before we move on to verse 31 and keep uh, trekking through this passage, I want you to see how Jesus brings doctrine and application together so that they are one. Jesus never does theology for the sake of doing theology. The scriptures don't do theology just for the sake of doing abstract theology. Look at what Jesus is doing in this paragraph. He certainly is doing theology. He identifies himself with the Father. He claims to be one with God the Father. Not just so he can establish an abstract theological proposition, though. No, he makes these claims for the purpose of showing how his oneness with the Father secures our eternal life. No one can take you out of my hand because I'm stronger than everything and everyone. No one can take you out of my Father's hand because he's stronger than everything and everyone. So Jesus is making two points at the same time. The first point is that the Father and Son are equally powerful, omnipotent, because they're both God. Each one's hand is the hand of God. This reminds us of John 8, 6, where the finger of Christ in that passage is the finger of God. The second point is that the power of God that resides in both the Father and the Son is strong enough to keep you safe and fed for all eternity. You're taken care of. Not because of anything you accomplish or orchestrate, because you got your calendar and your life under control, but because of God's hand, Christ's hand, which is God's hand. That's why. The omnipotence of God the Son is the omnipotence of God the Father. They are one in strength and their unity and their divine power are for your salvation, for your eternal life. See, it's not just pie in the sky theology. There's implications of this and Jesus points that out. So Jesus takes us to the heights of theological truth by showing us how it applies to our lives, to our walk with the Lord. And there's a lesson in this for all of us. We should never separate doctrine from application. Or application from doctrine, as far as that goes. But good theology is always related to the Christian life. And the Christian life properly understood is always rooted in theology, in scripture, in biblical theology. So don't be afraid of doctrine. Doctrine is good. Just beware of doctrine that's disconnected from real life. Theology that stays in the clouds and never touches the ground is not actually theology at all. It's not the study of God. So here, Jesus shows us why his godness, his divinity, matters. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Therefore, the eternal life that he came to purchase for you on the cross is secure. He's sovereign. He can do it. He will accomplish it. You're safe and secure as long as you are in the God-man. Not just a man, but the God-man. No one can snatch you out of the hand of the sovereign shepherd of the sheep. 
The fact that Jesus is God is really good news for his people, for us, for you and me. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so how did the Jews respond to this? What's interesting about their response is that they got the theological point. They realized that Jesus was identifying himself as Yahweh, as the Lord God. In our day, it's becoming almost fashionable, it seems to me, for people who call themselves Christian to at least question whether the Bible really teaches that Jesus is God. Now, of course, there have always been people who call themselves believers and deny that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. But I kind of wonder if the advent of the internet has made the problem even worse, just as it's made a lot of other problems worse. I don't know. But in John's gospel, the unbelieving Jews, the God-haters, are better interpreters of a lot than are better interpreters than a lot of people who call themselves Christians. They hate Jesus and they don't believe that he's God, but they realize that Jesus himself is claiming to be God in human form. That's why verse 31 says that they picked up stones to kill him. Look at verses 31 to 33. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So verses 31 to 33 make it abundantly clear how the Jews, at least, understood verse 30 and the verses leading up to verse 30. Verse 30 is sort of the the climax, the culmination, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They heard blasphemy. Specifically, they heard him to be saying that he's equal with God in power and being. You, being a man, make yourself to be God. Now, this, is, this isn't the first time they accused Jesus of making himself equal with God. Turn back in your Bibles, just a few pages, to John chapter 5. And I know you all have your Bibles, right? John chapter 5, and we'll read verse 18. John five, eighteen. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Why? Two reasons. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but even more important, he also said that God was his father in such a way that he made himself equal with God. In other words, he claimed that God was his father in a unique way. Of course, all of Israel knew that God was their father. Exodus 4, God calls Israel his son. And so they, he is their father. But Jesus was doing it clearly in a unique way. And the Jews realized that he was claiming to be one with the father in a special way, in substance and in being. And they were right. They were right in John 5.18 and they're right here in John 10.33. They were understanding Jesus correctly. There's zero indication in the text that they were wrong about this. And there would be if they were wrong. The whole context of John's gospel confirms that they were rightly interpreting Jesus. And to prove this, we'll just look at six passages, key passages in John, which clearly teach that Jesus is God. And if you have your Bible, follow along with me here. First is the very first verse in John's gospel. John 1, verse 1. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here John distinguishes Jesus from God the Father, and he identifies him as God in the same sentence. So he distinguishes him from God the Father and identifies him as God in the same 
sentence. Jesus was with the Father in the beginning, but he himself was also, has always been God. So for more on this verse, you can, you can go back and listen to the sermon in the archives. Second verse, flip over a few pages to John 5, 19. This comes right after the verse we just read, 5, 18, a minute ago. The next verse says, John 5, 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does. Lost my place. The Son also does in like manner. So whatever the Father does, the Son does in the same way, in like manner. So he identifies his works with his Father's works. What one of them does, each of them does. Okay? A few more chapters. John 8. John 8, verse 58. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the more natural and grammatical thing for Jesus to say here would have been, before Abraham was, I was. I would have communicated that he pre-existed. He, he came before Abraham. Instead, Jesus breaks the rules of grammar in order to emphasize that he himself is the I am of the Old Testament. There's no other conclusion to get from what he's doing here. Before Abraham was, I am. It's that phrase that John likes to use, likes to put on the lips of Jesus because Jesus said it. I am. Preached on this verse a few months back. Now, John 10. John 10, verse 18. John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes it from me. This is from last week. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. We've already discussed this. Uh, Only God has the power to take life and to, to give it back. And here Jesus claims the same power and authority that belong exclusively to God. All right, number five, fifth verse, John 12, 41. John chapter 12, verse 41. This is one of my favorites. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And the, the his glory and the him, the, those pronouns, they refer to Jesus. So Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. This is fascinating. John is saying that back in Isaiah 6, which Bobby actually read at the very beginning, when Isaiah saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, Isaiah was actually looking at Jesus. Jesus is the glorious Lord in Isaiah 6. We'll we'll be coming back to this verse in a few weeks, so I look forward to preaching on that verse. Finally, toward the end of the gospel, John 20, verse 28. This is Thomas' confession. John 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, notice that after Thomas says this, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for breaking the first commandment. Thomas isn't theologically confused. Quite the opposite. Look at the next verse, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. So he's saying that this is a confession of faith. Now, he had to see Jesus to make it, but it's still a confession of faith. 
So we know that the charge of blasphemy, blasphemy in John 10.33 is based on a proper understanding of the words of Jesus himself. He was claiming to be equal with God and for that they were about to kill him. In response, Jesus doesn't shrink back. He doesn't dodge or deflect. He doesn't pull some kind of a maneuver to get out of this. Instead, he just pushes back even harder. He ups the ante. He raises the stakes. Look at what he says in verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's God talking, Yahweh talking. I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of the Lord came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So what's going on here? I'm just going to warn you, you need to brace yourself. This is a little bit complex, but we're going to dive into it anyway because it's extremely fun. It's probably going to raise questions that I'm just not going to be able to answer. And that's okay too. We can talk about it after church some other time. So it's going to get a little complicated, so bear with me. In verse 34, Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. And to understand how Jesus is using this psalm, we need to turn there and just briefly take a look at what's going on in Psalm 82. So get your Bibles out again and turn to Psalm 82. The Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible, and Psalm 82 is pretty close to the middle of the Psalms. We'll start by looking at the first verse of the psalm. So Psalm 82, verse 1. And I want you to pay attention to the words God, capital G, and God's, lowercase g. Psalm 82, 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. So the big G God stands in the congregation of the mighty. And he, the big G God, the one true God, judges among the little g gods. Now, what's interesting, this is more of a side note, but both of those words are represented, uh, they are translations of the Hebrew word Elohim. So Elohim means God, or it can mean in some context, gods. It's actually a plural word. So you just have to figure out by context which one it's referring to. It's easy here. The first Elohim is God, capital G, and the one at the end of the verse is lowercase g. So we know who the big G God is. It's Yahweh. But who are these little G gods at the end of the verse, at the end of Psalm 82.1? It's important background for what Jesus says in John 10. And so it'd be, it'd be fun to dive into this for an hour, but the short answer is that the little G gods in Psalm 82, verse 1, are the heavenly beings, the angels, the angelic beings in God's chamber room, his chamber council. In the Old Testament, little g gods is a reference to the angels that God put over the nations after the Tower of Babel, after that incident. Deuteronomy 32 describes how he put the, these angels, or the sons of God, over the nations. And we often see these angelic beings in God's council chamber, like in Job 1. So sometimes they're called gods, such as in Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Psalm 97, verse 7. Other times they're called sons of God, such as in Genesis 6, 4, Job 1, 6, Deuteronomy 32, 8. In Psalm 89, they're called sons of the mighty. In Psalm 82, verse 6, which we didn't read, but toward the end of the chapter, they're called sons of the Most High. It's all the same thing. And oftentimes the references are to demons, actually. Angels who have rebelled against God. Okay? So let's bring it back to Psalm 82. Here in Psalm 82, these angelic beings are called gods twice. Once in verse 1, and again down in verse 6. In verse 6 is what Jesus quotes in John 10. In John 10, 34, he's quoting verse 6. So look down at verse 6. 
of Psalm 82. And I'm going to read Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. God is speaking, and he says, I said you are gods, and he's speaking to these angelic beings, these heavenly beings. I said you are gods, and all of you are children, or literally sons, of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So verse 7 there I just read at the end makes it clear that God is speaking to fallen angels who will die like men. So we know they're not men because they're going to die like men. God will judge these angels for being unjust judges of the nations that God put them in charge of. And one day, verse 8 says, God will take all the nations away from them and he'll inherit them himself. See that in verse 8? I will inherit the nations. And we know from Psalm 2 and other places that the only begotten Son of God is actually the one who inherits all the nations. Okay. So that's kind of what's going on in Psalm 82. That's some fun stuff there. But we're going to have to get back to John 10. What's this have to do with John 10? We'll turn back to John 10 and look again at verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? And he's, just, he's referring to Psalm 82 here. So that the whole Old Testament can be referred to as the law. <clears throat> in shorthand. Is it not written in your law? I said you are God. So he's quoting 82, Psalm 82, 6 there. The angelic beings are called gods. Verse 35. If he, God, called them gods, Jesus says, to whom the word of God came. And the word of God that came to them here is that judgment against them in Psalm 82 for being unjust judges. He said they'd die like men because of their disobedience. That's the word of God that came to them. If God called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? So Jesus sort of associates himself with these heavenly beings. It's almost like he's saying, I'm one of them, and God actually chose me. He sanctified me, and he sent, I'm the one he sent into the world. I'm his special one. But he actually goes even further than that. The last part in verse 36 really ruffled the feathers of the Jews, because they know what Psalm 82 is about, and they know what Jesus is saying. They know how he's making himself equal with God, unique. So in verse 36, Jesus isn't just saying that he's like one of the angelic beings who are referred to as the little gods in the Old Testament. That would have, that would have been problematic, but it wouldn't have been blasphemous. He's not even saying that he's the head one, although that's true in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, who's Jesus, is the head one. But He's saying that he's much greater than those little g-gods that make up God's council chamber. He's not just one of the sons of God. He is the son of God. He's not just one of the sons of the Most High. He is the son of the Most High. He's not just an angel. He's the angel of Yahweh. And when you read the Old Testament, you see that the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh are one and the same. Jesus is not one of the little g-gods in Psalm 82. He's one with the big g-god at the beginning of Psalm 82. He is the big g-god in human form. He's the eternally begotten Son whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, as verse 36 says. All the other gods were created by the big g-god, Jesus was not created. He's one with the big G God. And then Jesus puts the icing on the cake in verses 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. See, none of, these, none of those other gods were in Yahweh, were one with Yahweh the way the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh was. 
And the key phrase here is at the end of verse 38. That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus just keeps identifying himself as the God of Israel. Instead of backing down, Jesus doubles down. In his use of Psalm 82, he stated in no uncertain terms that he is the unique, eternally begotten Son, singular, of God. He's not grouped in with the little s, sons, plural, of God. Like Yahweh, Jesus is above all gods. You know that phrase in the Old Testament, above all gods, all little g gods? Jesus is included on the side that's above the little g gods. What's true of Yahweh in the Old Testament is true of Jesus. And what's true of Jesus is not true of the gods of the, in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus is a great God and a great king above all gods. Psalm 95, 3. For great is the Lord Jesus and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 96, 4. For you, Jesus, are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 97, 9. For I know that the Lord Jesus is great and that he is above all gods. Psalm 135, verse 5. The Jews understood how Jesus was applying the scriptures to himself. They realized that he was claiming, not just here, but over and over again, to be equal with God the Father. If you don't see that when you read this passage or the whole, enti- the whole gospel of John, then you're just failing to read at a basic level. Verse 40, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where Jesus was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. In ancient Israel, in, in, in the Jew, ancient Jewish writings, a man was not praised as a man of greatness unless he had performed some kind of miracle. John the Baptist didn't perform any miracles. And yet, Jesus said he was the greatest among those born of women. And John, the gospel writer, praises him as a man of greatness here in this text. His greatness consisted in the faithfulness and clarity and truthfulness of his witness to Jesus Christ. No preacher could ever ask for a better description of his preaching ministry than what we see the people saying about John's preaching ministry at the end of verse uh, 41. All the things that John spoke about this man were true. I can't think of a better epitaph for a preacher of the gospel. In closing, I want to bring us back to the heart of this passage, which is verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's important stuff. And it's based on who Jesus is and what he can do and how he can follow through on that promise. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. That's the good news in a nutshell. Jesus loves us, this we know. For the Bible tells us so. Little ones, to him belong. All of us are weak, but he is strong. He is the strong one in our relationship with him. When our grip on Jesus is weak, and it often is, his grip on us remains strong because he's not just a man. He's the God-man. He's the sovereign shepherd of the sheep. And we must never forget that our hold on Jesus is actually in response to his hold, his grip on us. His grip comes first. Our hold, our grip on him 
as a response. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. I press on that I may lay hold, grab on to, that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. So Christ is the one who laid hold of him first. And he's just trying to hold on to that which Christ uh, laid hold of first. So Christ laid hold of me and I'm pressing on that I may lay hold of him. So Jesus holds on to his sheep. He holds on to you, his sheep. And he can because he's God. So are you walking through a dark valley like the one mentioned in Psalm 23? Are you afraid? Then remember that your shepherd is with you. And he's not afraid. He's not worried. Are you cast down? Remember being cast down from a couple weeks ago? Are all four feet in the air and there's nothing you can do. You can't get back up. That's what what shepherds call being cast down. They're sheep. Then cry out to your good shepherd. He's never cast down. He's never helpless. And he'll pick you up and he'll love you. And he'll get you back on your feet. Christ is your Lord and your God. As Thomas confessed. Christ is your sovereign shepherd. Therefore you are safe. You are secure. You are fed in him. Let's pray. Father. Help us to trust. In Jesus our good and sovereign shepherd. Increase our faith by the power of your spirit. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.